Exodus 22, verses 16 through 31. The fire fades and the grass withers, but the word of our Lord endures forever. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. And you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses, The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me, and you shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with his mother, and the eighth day you shall give it to me, and you shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So this is the reading of the Lord's word this morning. Let's pray and ask him to bless it to us. Father, as we come before your word, we ask that you would uh, teach us what it means, that you'd help us to see it rightly. That you would teach, uh, that you would proclaim to us uh, your word and its truth in its entirety, that we would not hide, that we would uh, hear it all, that you would convict us, Lord, of our sins. But we ask, Lord, that you would also comfort us with the gospel, that you would lead us to Jesus, our only hope. In his name we pray, Father. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> So back in Genesis, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell from God, uh, a lot of stuff happened very quickly. But one of the things that happened was Adam and Eve were then cast out, right there, thrown out of the garden. And that means that they were thrown out of the presence of God. They were not allowed back into the garden. They were not allowed back into the presence of God. And yet humanity has been trying to get back there ever since. We've been trying to get back to God's presence ever since because we feel deep in our bones that we were made for that. We were made to live in the presence of God. So even in our exile and even as humanity are now, so to speak, sojourners um, without God's presence, we still seek God's presence. And and people outside of the church do this in, in any number of ways. But something worse happens through the fall. It's not simply that we're cast out of God's presence and that we're not with him anymore. Now, God's presence is actually a threat to us. That's even worse. Because we are sinful and because we are unholy, God's holiness is a threat to us. We've seen this in Exodus. In uh, in Exodus 3, Moses had to remove his sandals 
uh, when he approached the burning bush because the angel of the Lord said, you're walking on holy ground. This is not the same ground over there. This is different. The rules are different here and it's special. And we see that this, that mountain where, where Moses met God, that was Sinai. The burning bush was at Mount Sinai. So when Israel comes to Mount Sinai later in Exodus, they're not allowed to touch the mountain at all, lest God's holiness break out against them and destroy them. Because God's holiness is a threat to unholy people. God's holiness is, it's an inferno. And sinful humans are extremely flammable. So if the fall is ever to be reversed, and if humanity is ever to return to the presence of God, they must be made holy first. If we're ever to be in God's presence, we have to be made holy first or we will be consumed. And so throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, we're going to see various ways that uh, the Lord provides for Israel to be in his presence without being consumed. There are various ways that God provides throughout the Old Testament for Israel to be, uh, to be made holy, to be consecrated, so that they can stand in his presence. But at the end of the day, they were thrown out of the land, just like Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, because they were unholy. So even in our passage today, we're going to see one of the ways that the Lord provides uh, for Israel to be in his presence, but it is not a permanent solution. We'll see that we need more because the law in this passage, the law has no power to make holy. The law by itself has no power to make holy. All it can do is restrain unholiness. So even as we read these laws, we will see that we need more than these laws. We need to be washed of our, of our sin stank so that we can be in God's presence without being consumed. And what we're going to see is only God can do this. So these laws are going to, are going to show us that unholy people cannot stand in the presence of the holy God, but he has made you holy so that you may dwell with him. That's where we're going today. Unholy people cannot stand in the presence of the holy God, but he has made you holy so that you can stand, that you can dwell with him. So the first thing that I want you to notice is that there's a, there's a shift in this passage, in the language from the passages that have come before. So we've been reading a lot of these laws, and a lot of the laws uh, in the previous passages have gone something like this. If, if a guy does this, here's what happens. If, if this dude does this, do this. If you don't do this, don't do that. Blah, 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 right? If it's all third person. When you read these laws, in our passage today, notice that God uses personal second-person words. You, you shall not do this. You should do this. You shall not let this happen. Uh, You shall do this. And God speaks personally as well. God speaks and says, if you, right, second person, if you mistreat them, I will kill you. In other words, we're not dealing with issues of justice in this passage. We're dealing with personal issues that directly affect you and your relationship to God. We're dealing with personal issues that directly affect you and your relationship to God in these laws. So let's go through some of these laws and and briefly explore that. 
Um, so in the first couple of verses, the Lord commands, uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, that any man who seduces a virgin who is not betrothed, uh, he shall make her his wife. Uh, notice that this is consensual. It's not forced. There are different laws for when it's forced. But clearly, the man was not seeking marriage. Nevertheless, he is to take responsibility, and he is to make her his wife. He is to marry her, because this law protects the woman from being taken advantage of. But then the next few verses, the next few laws, they seem completely unrelated to each other. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Verse 19, whoever sleeps with an animal should be put to death. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So it, on, the, on the surface, it seems like these don't go together, but they actually do. Um, first, sorcery or, or magic is fundamentally against God. Magic is an attempt to, to have power over the spiritual realm, to fundamentally shape the world to your will. It's an attempt to subvert God's created order by having power over things that we were not created to to have power over or to, to interact with. And also that you can put yourself on top. So magic then is, is anti-prayer. Magic is the opposite of prayer. Because magic says, my will be done. And prayer says, thy will be done. So it shouldn't surprise you to learn that in the ancient world, magic was directly connected to the worship of pagan gods. Because when you worship a pagan god, you're trying to control that pagan god. You're trying to get something from it. So magic was directly involved in worship of of pagan gods. And the same is true of the next law of bestiality. Uh, The same is true of this because bestiality is inherently satanic. Um, Satan was the first to meld the image of God with a beast when he appeared to Adam and Eve as a snake, as a serpent. And so in Ugaritic and Babylonian religions, um, ritual sacrifice often included bestiality uh, because they were worshiping a half-god, half-beast deity. And so it was all tied together. And then the last law in verse 20, it, it, it feels almost tame right, in comparison to the first two. Don't sacrifice to other gods. But the force is the same. The uniting force is the same. Psalm 135 says, you become what you worship. If you worship the living God, you become like the living God. If you worship a half-God, half-beast deity, you will become like it. If you worship yourself, you will become a corrupted, twisted-in-on-yourself form. You will become what you worship. So magic and bestiality and idolatry, these practices and all practices like them are perversions of the created order. And we were made as humans in the image of the holy God. But these practices eat away at that image. These practices distort, twist, and corrupt your humanity. And hopefully... Hopefully, none of you are doing these things. Um, But there are other practices in our day and age that have the same effect. Um, We have an epidemic 
in our country, a certain kind of epidemic in our country. Um, because of the internet, uh, pornography is incredibly easy to access and contains every form of depravity that you can imagine. This is our epidemic. And the average age of exposure is somewhere between the ages of 8 and 12. And I, I struggle with this particular sin for a long time. And I can tell you that it is a drug. The more you use it, the more you need to, the more you need to get the same high, and the more depraved the videos get in order to achieve that same high. And it eats you. It destroys your humanity. So if you are stuck in this sin, get help today. Not tomorrow. Don't do it tomorrow. Get help today. Because there is hope. There is a savior. There is freedom from sin. But you need to talk to someone. If you're stuck in the sin, talk to an elder. Talk to me. Talk to an older Christian you respect. But the worst thing you can do with sins like this that destroy your humanity, the worst thing you can do is be silent because it will only eat you away. So that being said, let's, let's return to the text. Uh, and the next few verses that we read seem like they have nothing to do with holiness uh, at all. I'm going to read verses 21 through 24 uh, with a slightly different translation than the ESV. You shall not oppress a sojourner or bully him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not humiliate any widow or orphan. If you do humiliate them and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with your sword and your wives will become widows and your children will become fatherless. So on the surface, this law, it speaks about all these different kinds of people, sojourners and widows and orphans. Uh, These people are people who are defenseless. They don't have someone to defend them, right? The widow doesn't have a husband. The the child doesn't have a father. uh, The sojourner doesn't have a family or a clan to protect him. So they are easily taken advantage of. And to those who take advantage of these people, the Lord promises swift and personal judgment. God says, I myself will kill you. And this is the first time, actually, in all of these laws that we've read, that God says he himself will execute the judgment. This means that God takes this particular sin personally, even more personally than sorcery and bestiality and idolatry. Why? Why does God take it so personally? In Psalm 68, the Lord says this. We read this. Um, earlier in our in our service, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God in his holy habitation is a protector of widows and father of the fatherless. What this means is that God's God's holiness means he has staked his name and his reputation upon the protection of widows and orphans. And that's why in these laws here today, God says, I will execute judgment. I will kill you because when you attack the widows and the orphans, you're attacking me. It's an attack upon God's holiness. 
You're daring God to do something about it. And God promises he will. So any, any society or any religion that does not care for widows and orphans does not understand who God is. To care for widows and orphans is integral to God's holiness. And the same goes for how you treat the poor. Verses 25 through 27, the Lord says that the poor are his people. If you oppress the poor, you're oppressing his people. But in verses 28 through 30, we get another set of laws that, that, again, seem kind of out of place. Like, what do these have to do with God's holiness? Uh, And it says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. Now, to revile God means to call God lightweight or insignificant. To revile God means to consider him or call him insignificant. And when you don't offer from the fullness and first fruits of your harvest, or when you don't give to him what belongs to him, your firstborn sons or livestock, that's exactly what you're doing. You're reviling him. You're considering him insignificant in your life because God should be the most significant. God should be receiving all of our worship, all of our honor. The best that we have to give should go to him. And if it's not going to him, that means it's going somewhere else. Which means that you consider God insignificant. Instead, Of that, God says in verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. That's that verse is the thesis for the whole passage. You shall be consecrated to me. Why? Because if you're not, if you violate my holiness in any of these ways, it's the death penalty. You will die. Why? Because you violated God's holiness, and his holiness cannot be in the same room as unholiness. His holiness will consume it. That means that if Israel is to be in God's presence, they have to be consecrated, which means they have to be made holy in order to stand before him, in order to be in his presence. That's what these laws are showing. But notice what's missing in this passage. God says you should be consecrated to me, but nowhere in the passage does it tell you how. Nowhere does the passage tell you how to be made holy. These laws do show us why these sins are so deeply wrong. It's because they they violate the perfect holiness of the Almighty God. You shall not revile God. You shall not consider him lightweight and airy and insignificant because he is heavy with glory. His holiness is weighty and unmovable and unapproachable. And if you want to be in his presence, you have to be holy as he is holy. Therefore, magic and bestiality and idolatry, taking advantage of others, especially widows or orphans, 
These are personal attacks against God's holiness. But nowhere does the passage tell you how to be holy. These laws restrain on holiness. But they don't tell you how to be holy. And that's because you cannot become holy by yourself. You have to be made holy by someone else. And that's why in verse 31, the Lord says, you shall be consecrated. That's a passive verb. You're not the object of that verb. You're not the one doing the consecrating. You're the one being consecrated. You're not the one doing the operation. You're being operated upon. You have to be made holy by someone else. And so when we look at the New Testament and you look at what Jesus does and who he hangs out with, this makes perfect sense. Because who does Jesus hang out with when he came to earth? Did Jesus hang out with the Pharisees and the scribes? The people who thought that they were the holy people? The Pharisees were like, I'm so holy. I'm so great. The scribes were like, I've done all the law. I've kept the law. I must be holy. I must be consecrated. But Jesus doesn't go hang out with them. Who does Jesus spend time with? Sinners, prostitutes, lepers, widows and orphans, cripples, the poor. Everybody that society considers unclean and unholy, that's who Jesus goes to spend his time with. Why? Because his mission was to make them holy. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the thieves, nor the revilers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. As we read in our assurance of pardon today, Paul then says this, and such were some of you. but you were washed. People of God, you are unholy. You have sinned. You cannot stand in God's presence. To be in his presence, you have to be made holy in order to be there. And Jesus Christ did that. That was his mission when he came to earth, was to make unholy people holy. That was his whole purpose. That was the purpose of the cross, was to make us holy, to, to offer himself sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, so that you can be made clean. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you can be made clean and made holy. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Because he loved you. Even though you were unholy and stained and ugly, Jesus loved you. And his love for you makes you beautiful. His love for you transforms you and makes you holy without anything that you have done at all. 
And this means that you get to stand in God's presence. You get to be with God without any fear. Back in verse 21, God says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners. Past tense. You were sojourners. You were exiles. But not anymore. Paul says in Ephesians 2, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That means that God is your father. That you get to be in God's presence because of Jesus forever. And that means that even if you still sin and mess up and go back to the sins, the unholiness of the world, even if you continue to fail every single day, God will never leave you or forsake you because the foundation of your sin, the foundation of your holiness is nothing you have done. The foundation of your holiness is the perfect, pure blood of Jesus Christ spilled for you on the cross. That means that God goes with you. Everywhere you go, Everything you do, every day, God goes with you. His presence walks with you, and he'll never leave you. How then should we live? How should you live as God's people who have been made holy? James one twenty seven, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How then should you now live as God's people who have been made holy be like God? God is compassionate. God cares for the poor. God hung out with sinners and prostitutes. And lo and behold, we have a room full now of sinners. So we get to spend time with each other and show Christ's love to each other. Imitate God. Be like him and flee the sins of the world. Not so that you might be made holy and earn it for yourself. Flee the sins of the world because you've been set free and you've been made holy by Jesus. And one last point this morning. In the last few verses, the Lord commands Israel to give from the fullness of their harvest, uh, of their presses, to give their firstborn sons, um, and to those outside the faith, uh, it can seem like God is greedy. Right? Why does God want like all the first stuff and all the best stuff? Why does he want your kids? Right? That seems like it makes God greedy. Uh, but I want you to remember a principle of scripture is that um, we give to God because he first gave to us. And God has not given us the scraps. God has given us the best that he has to give. God has given us his firstborn son, Jesus. God has given us abundantly out of the fullness of his storehouse. He has given us all that he has. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, this supper doesn't look like much, but this is actually a feast, a holy feast. It is an abundance. It is the fullness. It is the firstborn son of God. Because the bread and the wine through the spirit are made the body and blood of Christ. So that when we partake of the supper, we partake of Christ, 
of the lamb who was slain to make us holy. So I'd like to invite the elders forward so that we can partake of this meal. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have signed and sealed it to us with an oath. Lord, we thank you for your covenant, that we are in a permanent place with you, that we get to dwell with you forever without fear. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us and help us and equip us, Lord, to, to love each other as you, as you have loved us. Help us, Lord, to worship you in a pure and undefiled way, to love the least among us, the widows and the orphans, that we would be like you, Lord, showing compassion and mercy and grace, and that you would help us, Lord, to flee from the sins of the world, to flee from the staining uh, corruptions all around us. Help us, Lord, to put it to death by your spirit. We can't do this, God, but we know you can. Help us to cling to Jesus. Lord, as we worship you and finish our worship this morning, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.